Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'll be talking first with uh, Matt Sledge, our criminal justice reporter here at The Advocate, who was at the scene of the horrific crash on Esplanade Avenue after the Endemian Parade uh, Saturday night. Next, I'll be sitting down with Janet Howard, the former president of the Bureau of Governmental Research, who will talk a little bit about uh, how tax money is divided up in the city and whether we have our priorities in order. And last, I'll chat with Sarah Pagones, the North Shore Bureau Chief for The Advocate, about the uh, rash of public corruption cases involving former law enforcement officials on the North Shore. Um, First up is Matt. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Gordon. So, uh, Matt, you happen to be one of the first reporters, I think, on the scene of this uh, horrible crash the other night in which uh, two people were killed and and seven injured, uh, three of them critically, um, all riding bikes. Um, maybe you can start by just telling us what you, how did you happen upon the story? Yeah, I mean, it was a really unusual uh, reporting process. Um, I was actually at uh, an Endymion party, uh, the same Endymion party I go to every year. And um, I was just kind of sitting there hanging out with my friends and then uh, another uh, acquaintance walked in uh, and he said, you'll never believe uh, what I just saw. And uh, he described seeing a man in a black sports car spin out on Esplanade, uh, then jump out uh, right next to him. And uh, this party guest uh, who was bicycling up Esplanade at the time, cycled after him and and kind of cornered this guy and, uh, you know, made him stop. And, uh, you know, he, he was describing him being highly intoxicated. Um, and, you know, it, all the guests at the party immediately asked, oh, was anybody hurt? Was, was anybody hit? And uh, he thought nobody had been hit. Um, and I think at that moment, I personally had this wave of relief uh, crest over me because it was at the same Endymion party two years before uh, when I got a phone call uh, that there had been a, a mass casualty incident involving a, a drunk driver, and mm-hmm. I had to rush out of the party and, and rush to the scene. So I, I thought to myself, oh, thank God I don't have to go to something like that again, because you know that, that was a really horrible thing to be at. And then about five minutes later, I started getting text messages and calls asked, telling me you know, there's been another mass casualty event on Esplanade Avenue. Can anybody get over there? And uh, I was finally able to put two and two together. This party guest uh, had seen a second collision involved in this very long and messy scene. And he hadn't realized that, you know, multiple people had been hurt and, and two people had been killed. So because this happened, this unfolded over sort of five blocks. Or yeah, so, right. It was a very long scene. So I, I kind of quickly switched into reporter mode, interviewed him at the party, and then got on my own bicycle and headed over to Esplanade Avenue and and started uh, interviewing more people who had seen all of this unfold. And so this first witness you talked to had seen quite a bit. He just hadn't seen the accident, but he had seen the condition of the driver. 
he described he said the guy the guy was shirtless very very drunk he said in fact he said he had to revive him right yeah i mean it was it was really striking he kind of chased after this guy on his on his bicycle more out of concern for him than anything mm-hmm. else he told me um and then he spots him and tries to tell him you know you better go back to that scene and the guy kind of passes out um a couple of other bystanders walked up and they all managed to revive him and when they did the first thing he said uh was call my daddy call my daddy he's in opd and as it turned out uh the driver Tashante tony uh is actually the son of an no PD officer. So that turned out to be a true thing he said, and we learned that sort of that we learned that a few hours later when the NOPD put out a news release acknowledging that this guy was the son of an NOPD officer, but assuring the public that this incident would be investigated just like any other one. Um, let's talk about what do we know about uh, Mr. Tony so far. Uh, it was Saturday, uh, the day of the Endymion Parade uh, was his thirty second birthday. Um, he's the son of an NOPD officer. We've been told that he works at the, the convention center. Um, and uh, according to police, uh, he told officers uh, upon his arrest uh, that he has a drinking problem and that he wished he had gotten help sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- that came as a surprise to uh, his, his grandmother uh, who spoke with one of our reporters who uh, was not aware of that. But I, I mean, so I guess, She said he didn't really drink. I yeah, I mean, I, I guess that was a facet of his personality that she had not been privy to. Hmm. Um, and uh, his status right now, he's been booked with two counts of vehicular homicide and seven counts of uh, yeah, negligent injury. Yeah, numerous injuring. other counts of negligent injuring and, and hit and run because, of course, he did attempt to flee mm-hmm. the sea. Uh, from what witnesses tell us. And we don't know what his blood alcohol level is at this point. Not yet. According to police, he refused uh, to do a breath test on the scene. He wouldn't blow into a breathalyzer. Um, so police were able to, uh, I believe, obtain a warrant uh, to draw his blood. Um, it can take a few days or longer uh, to do that test. And I mean, who knows if, if all the kind of carnival uh events uh, further slow down that test. So we don't have that number yet, but mm-hmm. by all accounts, he did appear to be intoxicated. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like by his own statements yes, as well. It certainly sounds like. Um, and, the, and the victims, what do we know about them so far? Yeah. So uh, from what we've gathered, uh, several of the victims, uh, most if not all were on bicycles and uh, many moved in kind of environmental and environmental justice circles and in the nonprofit world. Um, their ages ranged, I believe, from the 20s all the way up to the, the 60s. And um, it was a, a man and a woman uh, who both died. The woman was named Cherie Walls. She was a, a local nonprofit uh, executive and entrepreneur who had attended the University of Pennsylvania and was obviously very well loved uh, within uh, her world. There's Mm -hmm. been this outpouring of grief already. And the the Red Beans Parade, uh, of which she was a member in past years, is doing a memorial for her uh, today. We're taping this on on Lundi Gras. And um, the other uh, victim uh, who passed away uh, was 
David Hines, uh, who had lived in New Orleans, uh, had recently moved to Seattle, had recently gotten married, um, and was back here uh, for Mardi Gras. So very tragic all the yeah. way around. Yeah. A lot, you know, everybody who knew these people just speaks about how much potential they had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we've still got three people, of course, last we've heard in critical condition. So uh, obviously, um, they're not all out of the woods yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's there's still a lot of prayers going around uh, the city. I mean, it's it's remarkable. I was out uh, at some of the parades yesterday, and pretty much everybody I ran into uh, was was talking about this. It has kind of cast a shadow over yeah. the carnival this year. Well, it certainly uh, caused a lot of conversations. I think about the practice of people drinking and driving, whether. Uh, a lot or a little or whatever, just sort of what, what happens after a carnival parade when a lot of people, of course, drove themselves there and have perhaps uh, had a few beverages while they're there. This guy sounds like he had more than that, but um, that's may prompt a bigger discussion in this community. I hope so. I mean, I, I attended the, uh, the victim impact statements um, when the uh, Endymion uh, 2017 driver, Nielsen Rizzuto, uh, was sentenced, and it was really just gutting uh, to hear about how that had affected all of the literally dozens of victims. Uh, lives. Thirty-two people injured. Thirty-two in people, and and you know nobody died uh, in that incident, uh, luckily, but you know countless lives were were changed, mm-hmm. and I think the same thing happened on Saturday. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for uh, joining me today, Matt, and a great job of getting us those details from that scene the other night. Thanks, Gordon. All right, joining me today is a special guest, uh, Janet Howard, the former CEO and president of the Bureau of Governmental Research. Uh, thanks for coming by today, Janet. A pleasure. Thank you. So, um, Janet, first of all, how long has it been since you were at the BGR? Oh, I retired about three years ago. Okay, and you were there for... Forever and ever, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you were there in my entire experience yes, as a yes. reporter. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, Janet, you've you have continued to follow the BGR's work, and you've and some of this work goes back. Some of the work we're going to talk about goes back years. Uh, we were going to talk a little bit about the um, struggle between the tourism industry and city officials that's going on. Maybe the major political fight in the city right now. Sure. And it's something that BGR has written a lot about over the years, including in a, in a recent report, just some BGR has consistently raised questions about whether too many of our public resources are devoted towards tourism. Is that fair? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, about three years ago, they did a report that laid out how we were spending our tax dollars because we have all these serious needs for infrastructure in terms of billions of dollars. And yet, when you look at how our taxes are being allocated, very little is going to things as basic as street. 3% of the overall taxes go to street, 14% go to tourism. And that, that really raises some red flags about whether you're aligning your resources with your needs. And I guess, you know, you see the results of that uh, when you drive down the streets every day. You feel it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and arguably, New Orleans is a place that maybe needs to spend more on streets in some places because of the the kind of soil we have. Right. We have, we, have, we have bad soil. Um, 44% of our streets are in failing or near failing condition. Um and, you know, there's only 14% that are considered good or excellent. And obviously, there's a problem there. 
And what what would you uh, what is first of all what does three percent roughly amount to? I mean, how much are we spending on streets, and what do you think might be a more reasonable amount? I'd have to dig out the numbers for what we're spending from bond issues, but yeah. I know that um, in, in terms of, of maintenance, the last number I saw was nine million dollars a year, whereas it, the estimate for the city itself is it should be in the range of thirty five million. Now, this is just to maintain the streets, not right. to do any of the rebuilding that needs to be done. Um, Obviously, for rebuilding, there's some FEMA money coming in, and there's um, but that can only be used at specific places. It doesn't even cover entire blocks in, mm-hmm. in, in, in certain areas. So it's an it's a, 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 a wonderful source, but it's totally inadequate for the, the needs. And if I'm remembering right, BGR did a report some years back that talked about how it's much cheaper to kind of maintain your streets. They last a lot longer. If you do a full full renovation of a street, and then you maintain it, you'll save a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. Over. You'll save a lot of money in the, in the long run. And I'll give you an example. You have Baton Rouge, which it spends $40 million a year on street maintenance. Mm-hmm. And compare that with $9 million here where everything's right. greater. Right. I mean, the traffic's terrible there, but the streets are in pretty good shape. <laughs> so, um, so where do you what do you think we need to understand in this community? I mean, is it sort of a public education campaign? Do you think people would Maybe step back a second. Do you think people, if they understood how the money was divided up, they would disagree with that? Oh, I, I definitely think they would. They would disagree um, with, with how the money is being allocated. And there is an education process that goes into this. And there's also a need for an overall planning process uh, instituted by the city. The city is the only general government entity in uh, in New Orleans. And it, we really need a planning process led by the city as the, the representative in that capacity, pulling together the picture of how all these things are spent and working out a plan for how they should be um, reallocated. Obviously, that's a tough, tough political um, issue, but it's it's so critical. I mean, to give you an example, Gordon, um, I mean, tax revenues have more than tripled in 50 Overall years. tax revenues. Overall tax revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Uh, the the millage rate has doubled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sales tax rate has gone from uh, up from like I think it started at one point five to it's up at five percent now. Yeah, for local sales um, tax. Yeah, and the first uh, hotel motel taxes were put in in when the Superdome was constructed. That was around three percent. Now that is up to the equivalent of sixteen point three five percent. Yeah, that's a huge increase. But very little of it is going. You know, that increase is actually making it to these fundamental needs. So in other words, what you're saying is we would need sort of a process convened by the city where it's almost like we start from scratch and say, what are our sources of tax money? Where is it going? Instead of the idea is that nobody really is following all these different trails of money, the hotel tax and the sales tax and the, or people are not really realizing how all these things are no, carved up. It comes up. about an ad hoc way. I'll give you an example of uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, tourism industry went to the legislature and said, we want to give right for a 1.75% assessment on hotels, which was the equivalent of a tax. Yeah. BGR said, no, look, we've got to figure this out in the greater context of the overall needs. It uses up our tax capacity. That was just totally ignored. And the city came back a year later, two years later, and said, we need a 1.75% hotel tax. <laughs> and they were told that they'd already used up the taxing capacity. <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy. That's, that's just first out of the box kind of... right. Planning. And 
obviously the tourism industry is pushed back on a lot of this, mm-hmm. this, you know, the, the mayor Latoya Cantrell has been sort of out front on this idea that we need to reallocate, but so far there's been a lot of pushback and the governor who controls some of these state agencies that receive a lot of the money has also so far pushed back publicly. What do you think? How do you think that does that dynamic need to change and how does it, how does it change? Well, I think there's a fundamental problem here. I think there's um, the more public pressure that's created um, demanding that the resources be used to things like the basic infrastructure, the better chance we have of that happening. Because obviously we're dealing, you're dealing with the governor, you're dealing with elected officials. Yeah. Um, when you're dealing with the, whoever's appointing people, you're dealing with elected um, officials. So I think that's an important step, but it's this education piece too. Um, and one other little interesting thing, Gordon, is when we first, back going back these 50 years, there were four entities that received taxes, and they were all they were school board, they were the city, they were the levy boards. Uh-huh. I can't, you know, they were the simple, and water board. basic they were, things. They were nuts right. and bolts. Of, right. Now there are over 60. And yeah. About half of those are in, um, you know, the, the various tax and security districts. But right. that still leaves a lot, a lot of, other, lot of yeah. other entities that have just gone off and got their own money, uh, gotten their own money. It's um, part of its mistrust in, in government. Um, right. So there's so things are allocated to a specific yeah. agency because people don't trust the city to parcel it out correctly. Right. They don't trust the, 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 the correct parceling. And so they want to make sure the money goes to what they say. And that that's fine. But the upshot of it is, is if you go decades without reevaluating these things, they can end up in the wrong place. Right. I mean, I guess you could argue something like this happened when there was uh, – you know, we approved the fourth phase of the convention center and then it uh, was never built. And then the money for that is sort of piled up in a way that, you know, I don't think people really paid a lot of attention yeah. to. Oh, yeah, there, were, there was uh, there was a, a hotel tax. There was a, a citywide um, food and beverage tax that was imposed at that time. They generate about $18 million a year and they're being generated for a project that never happened and was, you know, shelved. Yeah. And that yet they can continue to collect them and they're that's the kind of thing that really needs to be reevaluated. Um, and so looking ahead, I mean, one thing that's, that's been curious to me is obviously things like boil water advisories and, and problems with, say, the, the sewer system would, could and even the roads could be really harmful to the tourism industry. Do you think that that's an argument that would help move this? In other words, that the state of the city's infrastructure, what I'm trying to say is, is that is that something that's going to hurt our tourism industry just like it hurts all of us? Well, it hurts the residents. It, it hurts business um, attraction. And it's definitely going to hurt tourism eventually. How many boil water advisories can, um, uh, you know, do tourists want to, to deal with? And right. So far, we've had them for rather short periods of time. There could be something more, you know, significant longer that happened. And, and Janet, let me ask you one last question. If there's one thing you think people need to understand about this as we debate this, you know, hotel project and, and the question of whether the state should kick in money for the city's infrastructure, what do you think it is that people, New Orleanians in particular, should have their eye on? I think there are two things they should have their eye on. One is that they need to be aware of the misalignment of mm-hmm. resources and ask themselves if that's where they want their money's going. The second thing is they need to be aware that the actions of pol- the politicians take now, the actions that they take now, actually evalu- affect the availability of resources for infrastructure in the long run. There's only so much t- taxing capacity. So when people go to the polls and you know, vote for different measures, they need to consider, well, what does this mean for infrastructure? If in I other words, the pie, pie is only so big, and, and if pie, you the commit pie, the pie... 
the pie is only so big. And the other thing to be aware of for property owners yeah. is that we don't find resources by kind of reallocating what we can. That's a bigger and bigger burden that's going to fall on them because ultimately someone is going to have to pay for the streets and right. the, the drainage. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective, Janet. Uh, appreciate you coming by. Thank you, Gordon. Appreciate the opportunity. All Great right. Great to see you again. <laughs> nice to see you. All right. Joining me now is Sarah Pagones, the Bureau Chief for our North Shore Bureau in Covington. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Well, thanks for having me on. So you've been spending a lot of time lately covering uh, some law enforcement activity, kind of focusing on some of the former top law enforcement officers in St. Tammany Parish, uh, Jack Strain, the ex-sheriff, and Walter Reed, the former district attorney, um, including quite a bit during the last week. So maybe you can tell us what happened with, start with uh, Walter Reed, maybe. Well, that's a final chapter in a really lengthy, um, protracted legal process he was actually found guilty three years ago, 18 of 19 counts, which included corruption and fraud. And two years ago, he was sentenced to four years in prison, which was below federal guidelines. But the judge took the unusual step of saying he could stay out on bond while he appealed his case. Um, now, as of last week, he is being ordered to report to prison after having lost at the Fifth Circuit. So he is supposed to report by April 1st. So, and just to be clear, he has not completely exhausted his appeals, but it seems pretty bleak for him at this point. I mean, he he lost at the Fifth Circuit. He asked for an en banc hearing of all of the Fifth Circuit, and now his only recourse is the U.S. Supreme Court. That's right. right. And his attorney has, has steadfastly said that they are going to try to file writs with the Supreme Court. Um, the the prosecutors at the U.S. Attorney's Office said, well, you know, there's a very, very slim chance of that case ever mm-hmm. being heard by the Supreme Court, like a 1% to 5% chance every year. Um, uh, Peter Strasser said winter has come for Mr. Reed, and I guess that's true. And and really none of the lower court judges have bought into any of the arguments they've made. I mean, they keep saying this is federal overreach, but he hasn't gotten even a dissenting opinion yet, right? That's right. It was a, the three, three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit was unanimous, and the 14 judges were unanimous in saying we don't want to rehear it. Um, since the conviction and the sentencing, um, McDonald, which is the ruling that um, – Reed's attorney was hanging his hat on, has been very narrowly interpreted. So it, the feeling is that while at one time it looked like he might have something he could take to the Supreme Court, it's looking a little less um, mm-hmm. likely that they would consider it under those terms. And Walter Reed, of course, famously the guy who used to give out the St. Slamini Award and was very proud of uh, kind of sending a lot of people to prison. So Tough uh, sentences, multi-billing people, and, and just generally um, you know, being the tough-on-crime prosecutor. And so April 1st, he's due to report. Yes, and we don't know where yet, but he says he has packed his toothbrush, is ready to go, and is planning to do a lot of reading and teaching some Bible studies. All right. Um, Well, let's move on to Jack Strain, the former sheriff of St. Tammany Parish. A couple new, uh, fairly major new developments on his case this week, too. That's right. Um, The uh, two co-conspirators that are mentioned that were charged in a bill of information who are former captains and, and longtime personal friends of the sheriff, pleaded guilty last week to um, fraud, uh, conspiracy to commit fraud on a services fraud and conspiracy to um, solicit a bribe. And this is a, essentially a kickback scheme in which they say they were paying kickbacks to Jack Strain. He awarded the contract to run this work release facility yes. to uh, two of their adult children 
That's right. Um, they, they were going to set it up according to the Bill of Information. They were looking for a way to give it to the two people who are uh, Doc Hansen and Skip Keen, but they realized they would have to give up their positions. The sheriff's office didn't want to do that. So they came up with this other idea that they would um, have their adult children, Brandy Hansen and Jarrett Keen, um, act as the owners. And they were given that business on a no bid, no soliciting for bids contract. They formed their company three days before they got the bid. And they made $1.2 million in the three-year period running this thing, um, 700000 of which they gave back to their fathers who who kicked back, um, according to the Bill of Information, $1,000 increments or, or more than $1,000 increments to the sheriff. But they have never put a total on what Jack Strain would have gotten from that scheme. And the implication is that Jack Strain was not the primary beneficiary of this. I mean, they haven't really said, but they've said that he got these $1,000 plus regular payments, but it sounded like the other people involved in this made hundreds of thousands of dollars. It and sounds maybe, that way, Maybe yes. he made, they haven't really said, but the implication seems to be maybe he made 10000 or something. Or Three years, if it was $1,000 a month, and we don't know yeah. if that would, yeah, that would be considered Maybe 30000 mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that, of course, looks like, very strongly looks like the feds are going to indict Jack Strain. I mean, they've all but said they are in the way that they've worded these documents. They're- they have not said his name, but they've called him a public official, and they have referred to him at they have referred to the sheriff in the bill of information. And they've accused him of a of they've accused the sheriff of crimes in these right. documents. So it's clear they're gonna charge him in that. And then meanwhile, in yet another development that we've been writing quite a bit about, that there's a separate investigation into the former sheriff over these sex abuse claims. That's right. There was a very um, strange twist that was taken in the Jack Strain saga, and that was accusations that he was sexually abusing underage um, people male and female, and that um, there was an investigation, active investigation going on that was sort of um, stemming from this, this financial... Somehow it was an outgrowth of this kickback right. investigation. These are the allegation, which we still is, is somewhat vague, but there's at least four victims we've been told are alleged victims, and that they were underage during some or all of the alleged abuse, and that it includes males and females... And it includes and, activity that may have taken place while he was sheriff. And some of it before. And some of this takes place over decades. We don't really know the exact time frame this is, may have taken place. But but you spoke to one of the alleged victims yes. recently. You and Katie Moore did a story. Significantly, we did have somebody come forward and say, yes, I am a victim of Jack Strain. There's a guy by the name of Mark Finn. He has the word psycho tattooed on his neck. He has a lengthy criminal record. He spent half of his adult life in prison, but he is also somebody who has known um, Jack Strain all his life. He says his father and Jack's father were best friends. Jack's dad was his godfather. Um, he was over at their house all the time as a kid. And what he told us was that from the time he was six till the time he was 12, Jack Strain sexually molested him. And eventually that became actual rape. And Jack Strain was uh, seven years old, is seven years seven older years than him. So than this him. happened when they were both fairly young into when Jack was a young adult, allegedly. That's right. And according to um, Mr. Finn, um, there were a couple of times when he was incarcerated in the halfway house that um, Jack took him off premises and maybe made some, what one might call a pass at him, but that he um, rather firmly rebuffed him and it didn't go any further. But the, the story he tells us is pretty um, gripping and, and shocking. But it is um, 
not apparently the only person who has a story of that nature to tell. And we know this to be one of the cases that the authorities are, are investigating as a, I mean, they believe this guy is a possible victim. I, I think our sources indicate that he is being taken seriously as a victim. Um, and do we have a sense of where that case stands? The case, the state police have turned over the investigation to the St. Tammany Parish District Attorney's Office under Warren Montgomery. Um, we don't know whether they're going to bring it before a grand jury or what they plan to do with it. Um, we do know that this investigation has been going on for a while because Mr. Finn told us that authorities came and talked to him two years ago. Yeah. They came asking about money and they left with a, a different set of allegations to look at. So I don't know how fast it's moving. It's not clear. Um, it is not clear how it's going to intersect with the federal case. Right. It, it is a state charge. Um, it's not a federal crime to um, commit sex crimes. So, right. Um, it would be a different jurisdiction. It would be kind of a, on a different path. So I really are not sure what the timing of that is. But um, it is an interesting intersection, and um, it's it's clear that um, he's got a way more to worry about than than this corruption case. And we know the FBI is involved in both of these, and and there are, you know, this would be unusual, but there is precedent for what you know you might call a global deal, where this happened in the Darren Sharper, mm -hmm. uh, the Saints player, who was accused of sex crimes and eventually pled guilty in state and federal courts to a sort of a charges that resolved it was actually in multiple states and in federal court and it was a global deal that that resolved all of that so I, I suppose something like that is in the it's a possibility now i should also say that uh jack strain's lawyer billy gibbons has said that he vehemently denies any of this he also denies the kickback scheme i should say but um so that's that's where we are with that people who have you know have done criminal defense work have all told me that that what they would be looking for if he was their client would be an inglobal plea. If he, you know, unless he's going to fight it. Of unless course. he's going to fight it, of course. So we don't know how that stands. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, I, I think there's more to the story than just the sex allegations. And that may be that there was a, a history of favorable treatment of Mark Finn when he was incarcerated by the sheriff. And so that's something that I think we are going to be looking into further. All right. Well, we'll look forward to reading about those, uh, those stories in the future, Sarah. Thanks for your work on this. Well, thank you. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.